What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? So this is the one-year anniversary of January 6th we're releasing this on, and we have got a great guest who's written a fantastic book, Jonathan Carl of ABC News, an old friend of mine, friend from Vassar College, and uh, he's written a fantastic, fantastic book that is not just about January 6th, it's about the last year of the Trump presidency. The book is called Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show. Yes, because his first book was called Front Row of the Trump Show, so this is now the sequel to that. It's a great book. I listened to it on Audible on a car ride where I had a 10 hours in the car to focus, <laughs> and it was just terrific. And what I liked about it was, one, it was meticulously reported. He spent a lot of time tracking down sources and getting a lot of details to stories that we've all heard peripherally, some of them, some we hadn't heard at all, but also very even-handed. He gives credit to the people who did the right thing. And uh, it's not a polemic. It is a truly objectively reported book about the last year of the Trump presidency and what happened on January 6th and why it was so dangerous. So one of the things that really troubles me one year on is that there has been this attempt at revisionist history. There have been people who have sought to downplay what happened. There have been people who have suggested that it wasn't Donald Trump supporters that were out there that day. It was people who were seeking to besmirch the honorable Donald Trump's reputation. I think those people are not fully in touch with the reality that we know. But again, there have also been people who have suggested that we were moments away from a coup d'etat, that our democracy is almost at an end, that American democracy is in fact so broken that we cannot lecture other countries about their lack of democracy. So all of this. I think, represents a real dive away from from reality. And John gets right into it. I think you can hold two things at the same time. One, what happened was incredibly serious, that it wasn't just a riot. That it was an attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power, that Donald Trump was responsible for it and then encouraged it and has continued to spread lies about what happened in the election that are destructive to the country and to the party, and at the same time not believe that our democracy is in peril. And that's one area where I sort of disagree, and I get into it a little bit with John in the interview. I just don't think that our democracy was in peril. I think one of the things that this shows is how resilient our democracy is and how strong our institutions are, that you had a commander-in-chief who was really truly trying to stop the transfer of power, trying to convince his vice president to do something that violated the Constitution, and so many people did the right thing against their own political interests, including Vice President Pence, who I'm sure he's going to try and navigate the political waters, but may have done irreparable damage to himself in defense of the Constitution. Just say that sentence again. May have done irreparable damage to himself in defense of the Constitution. What does that say about our political system and about our voters? Well, first of all, it says great thing about our political system. It doesn't say a good thing about Donald Trump who put him into that choice. But that others perceive, other than Donald Trump, that there are people who perceive that Pence betrayed trade somebody and that was more important than the Constitution seems to me to be a little troubling. Well, I don't think those people think that he was being asked to violate the Constitution because I don't know that they realized that they were told that he could do it. Look, as we talked about, and you get into this in the interview, the Russia hoax, right? All the flies that have been told about Trump, all the money that has been spent to try and destroy him. A lot of these people basically don't trust the media. And this is one of the big problems. The big problem, actually, we should have gotten into this with John. I wish we had, is that One of the big problems we had after January 6th was that there was no neutral arbiter of truth left in this country because the media had so discredited itself in terms of how it went after Trump and how it spread the Russia collusion conspiracy theories and all the rest of that. And he, in turn, turned around and called it fake news and convinced a lot of people that the media couldn't be trusted. And so when we needed someone to be able to say balls and strikes, truth and fiction, no one believed them. Right? Yeah, no, um, no, no. I, and you're right. And I think that is a big problem. But it's a long trip from not trusting the media to taking weapons into the United States Capitol. But most Trump supporters didn't do that. 
Right, of I mean, course they, they, not. Was, but there were enough minority people, of people. I don't know how many there were in Washington at the time, but most of them didn't go to the Capitol. Most of them didn't violate the law. And Trump supporters around the country aren't responsible for what that small minority did. What that small minority did was horrible and it was an attempted insurrection. I agree with that. And you and I both worked in the US Senate for years. It was one of the darkest days of our democracy that I've ever seen. And I don't want to underscore I don't want to you don't, you I don't, don't, I don't right, downplay you don't want it. But yeah. I don't want also don't want to tar the seventy four million good Americans who voted for Donald Trump and who wanted him to win with the broad brush of what a handful of people did. Okay, that's fair enough. I think where we really get into an interesting place, and this is where I think John really adds to the debate and the understanding of what happens, is much less the sort of the TikTok of what happened step by step and move by move in the Capitol, where we really know and we're seeing a court process and people are being punished, deservedly so, but where we see how the president himself acted, what the president himself did, what the people around him did, the choices that they made. And one of the things that troubles me is the fact that, okay, you're right. You cannot tar the Republican Party and the Republican voter with what happened on January 6th. It is unjust. It is unfair. They did not do that. On the other hand, he did nothing to stop it, and yet he has not discredited himself with those people. That is, I think, the big question for me, is how is it that people can talk about Donald Trump running again in 2024 with a straight face? Well, if you believe, as he's convinced millions of people, that the election was stolen, then maybe you don't think what happened was unjustified. I'm just saying it's the big lie. People have bought into the big lie. People have been told the big lie. They don't trust the media. They believe Trump. Trump irresponsibly is telling them that he won in a landslide and that it was stolen from them. And so if you believe that, then you might say they shouldn't have done that. But you're not looking at it like this was the betrayal of our democracy that you and I see it as, because we know that it wasn't stolen. And that's, by the way, that's one of the things that John does really well in this book, which is another reason why people should read it, is that what he does is he goes through, he doesn't just say like so many people in the media is just a throwaway line. It's the big lie. All of Trump's claims are wrong. He actually goes through and looks at the claims made by Trump and by his lawyers and meticulously goes through and explains why each of these claims wasn't accurate with really good reporting. And I think for most Americans, if you're not sure whether or not Trump is right, because I think a lot of people wonder if he's telling the truth or not, read the book because literally he goes through and you can say, here's what Trump says and here's why it doesn't add up. It was an incredibly useful exercise in reporting on the actual facts of what happened on the ground in the election. Right. And of course, the first person who did that and who did the sort of the case-by-case -case rebuttal was Liz Cheney, if yes. you remember. And then we remember all of those Republicans who refused to certify the election based on a lot of these lies. And this is, of course, they know their lies, right? They know the election wasn't stolen. The long-term consequence of this is the question about the Republican Party and about Trump's hold over the Republican Party. And again, we get into this with John, but I think it's absolutely fascinating. He's got a great story about the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, and Trump calling her. And again, meticulous reporting, but for me, questions that really remain unanswered. How do Americans continue to support someone who thought that what happened on January 6th was really a good thing? I understand their disenchantment with the Democratic Party because I feel exactly the same way. Exactly the Not same way. Disenchantment, Danny. I mean, fear, fear, fear of the Democratic Party. I mean, this is the problem that we're in, right? Is that it's not like we have a benign alternative, right? So maybe our democracy does have a problem. Maybe we need some real changes. I mean, we've talked about talking about this, and I think it would be really worth trying to explore what changes to our political system might lead to more palatable outcomes. Because a Democratic Party dominated by the squad and a Republican Party dominated by somebody who thinks it's perfectly fine to invade the Capitol and steal the electoral ballots is really not a fantastic situation to be in. Look at 2024. I mean, can you imagine to yourself if we are faced up with Joe Biden, who's not entirely sure where Ukraine is and actually believes that Golda Meir wanted him to negotiate peace for our time, and Donald Trump, who thinks that he was betrayed by Mike Pence, who should have... Uh, Another scoop in this Carl book, who thought it was okay that people said that Pence should have been hung, yeah. right? Yeah. What are we left with in 2024 if those are our choices? Well, hopefully those won't be our choices. And again, anybody who's listened to this podcast, read my columns, knows how I feel about January 6th, how I feel about the big lie and all the rest of it. 
John makes a case here that there was a real danger to our democracy, to our institutions. From this, it was greater than most people think. I look at what's happening in Washington right now, and I think that's a greater threat to our institutions than anything that happened in January of 2020. I think that the Democrats pose right now, the radicalization of the party poses an enormous threat to the institutions. Because if you look at the entire story of the Trump presidency, it is a story of this bull in a china shop who tried to do a bunch of things, and everywhere he went too far, the system checked him, right? There was a peaceful transfer of power. When he went too far, the Supreme Court overruled him. None of the courts upheld any of his electoral challenges. The system held with Donald Trump. The Democrats are trying to change the institutions. They're trying to change the system. They want to get rid of the filibuster. I'm telling you something, Danny, if it wasn't for Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who are my personal heroes right now, they would be doing it. They would get rid of the filibuster. They would start adding states. They would be doing court packing and all sorts of things like that. They're the ones who want to change the system. We've had this discussion before. I just think we need to be very wary when somebody does something that's entirely disqualifying to suggest that while mistakes were made during Mussolini's reign, but in fact, he finally did make the trains run on time. First of all, just like you don't like Nazi analogies, Mussolini analogies aren't. They seem, they seem less bad. <laughs> they seem less bad because he was such they're an incompetent, but he did make the, the trains run on time. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that in the case of Trump, the institutions held and checked him. And what the left is trying to do today is change our institutions. That's a fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, I agree. Feed our polarization, make all of these problems that you're concerned about worse. You know I agree with you, but I don't agree that it is worse than January 6th. I think that they are both assaults on our system. But, of course, not everybody came here just to listen to you and me (laughs) rehearse our arguments. Maybe they came to hear John Carl say a word or two. He doesn't really need an introduction. I think any of you who pay attention to politics must know him well. He's the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News. He's the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. His bio says he's covered every major beat in Washington, D.C., but he actually has literally covered every beat, the Pentagon, Capitol Hill, the White House. And notwithstanding that fact, through Republican administrations, Democratic administrations, writing for The Atlantic, writing several books, everybody still likes him. (laughs) I don't quite know what his magic is, but he's here with us to talk about the book that we mentioned at the outset. He wrote the New York Times bestseller, Front Row at the Trump Show, and it is only appropriate that there be a sequel to anything about Donald Trump, which is his book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump Show. Here's our interview. Jonathan Carl, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. I mean, what the hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) An excellent question. We ask that ourselves sometimes. Every week. Well, what the hell is going on is you have written a masterpiece. I listened to it with my son. First of all, I hadn't talked to you in a little while, and I felt like I just had a long conversation with you because you did all the talking. (laughs) But I just read it, taking my son up to Vermont to college, and it's really great. It's so meticulously reported and really, really well done. So, Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I... Truly, I put everything into it over the past year, and I think it's the most important thing that I've ever done. So I appreciate that. You tell so many great stories in the book. Tell us what you think was the most shocking story that you uncovered in your reporting. It was really an overall theme. As I pieced it all together, I realized that we got a lot closer to a much greater constitutional crisis than the one we had. And there were many places where things truly could have gone off the rails, and there were people kind of unlikely heroes, people that you would never have expected would have been those that stood up at the right moment and did the right thing by basically refusing the wishes of the commander-in-chief that kept us from getting a lot worse. And Pence is the most high-profile case of refusing to do what he was demanded on January 6th. But there were many people, people whose names aren't known, and unless people read my book, maybe will never be known. <laughs> but they basically did what they had to do under the law. But by refusing somebody so powerful political figures, local political figures. You know, I come back to the state legislative leaders in Michigan who were summoned to the White House on November 30th by Donald Trump. I mean, these are Trumpers. These are local leaders who were elected to office by people who loved Donald Trump and believed everything he was saying about the election. And he called them in and wanted them to reconvene the legislature and send in a new batch of electoral votes. And they left that meeting and they put out a statement that they had clearly written before they went into the meeting and said, you know, we're going to follow the law. God bless you. I'm not going to do that. We can't do it. First of all, let me echo Mark. Really, 
I mean, we live in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of good reporters in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of good writers in Washington, D.C. This is a tour de force. You did a wonderful job. It's not just the great interviews that you got. And I know that because you're a well-respected reporter, words that don't always go together in this town, you got a lot of great interviews, a lot of people who were really there present at the creation, so to speak. But the way it's written is also just wonderful. So I really credit you. I didn't listen to it on one of my endless drives like Mark did. I read it, which is still how I like it. Very old-fashioned. Yes. You're older than me. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, we have this commercial break so that Mark can say mean things to me. Anyway, coming back to the serious question, you say we came a lot closer. I think that with the passage of time, a lot of people look back on January 6th and they say to themselves, oh, come on. I mean, we know Donald Trump's enemies in the press exaggerate everything he does. Donald Trump's enemies in politics. And look at the Russia hoax. I mean, we now know that was a hoax. So I think what would be very useful to our listeners is for you to really paint that picture that you paint so beautifully in the book about just how close we came. What could have happened? First of all, I think it's important with January 6th, you know, there's been so much focus on the prosecutions that DOJ is doing, all these people who were there being prosecuted for everything from assaulting police officers to vandalizing government property to being where they shouldn't have been. I mean, those are criminals. Those are crimes. But in some ways, some of those crimes are petty crimes. Some of them are very serious, assaulting police officers. But the real crime that took place on January 6th wasn't that. I mean, we see riots. We see terrible stuff every day across the country. It wasn't that a bunch of people went and charged the Capitol and broke in. It was why they did it and what the effort was. It was an effort to stop the transition of power. It was an effort to overthrow a presidential election. It was an effort to undo what I believe is basically the crown jewel of American democracy, which is we have these elections, we fight bitterly, we get hotly contested, and then there's a transition. The winner wins, the loser concedes and wishes the winner well, and we'll fight you in the next election. And there was an effort to stop that. We are a system of laws. And what I really learned as I was going through all this, maybe it's obvious to you guys because you're smarter than me, but I learned that our system actually depends on for the most part, people to act with honor and to abide by the law. And if the people who are entrusted with enforcing the law on a wholesale basis break the law, we're in real trouble. So go to January 6th itself. We have a whole system that's set up, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, is it? It sets out the rules for what happens now on January 6th. We move the inauguration. That whole system States send in their electoral votes. It's very archaic. You know, they have to be signed by certain people. They have to be sealed in a certain way. They're literally sent by certified mail to the Capitol building. And then they're opened and the vice president counts them. They don't and bring them like, on like a horse and buggy. Yeah, I mean, basically. And, yeah, it's you know, a wonderful tradition. It is, absolutely. And, and then they're put in those mahogany boxes. The boxes haven't been there all along. The mahogany boxes are like a century old. But it's a system. So when the Capitol got invaded... And the senators were rushed out just minutes before the shaman came in with his horns. Somebody who doesn't want to be named, but one of the staffers on the Senate Parliamentarian's office, you guys both worked in the Senate, you know, these are public servants that work in the Parliamentarian's office, young woman Parliamentarian's office, we've got to grab those, the boxes that had the ballots. If those boxes had been grabbed by the rioters and the ballots destroyed, It may seem like, oh, well, you just have the state send in a new one or we know what they are. We can just add them up. Well, I mean, under our system of laws, it creates a crisis. What do you actually do? I mean, it's like one minor thing that could have happened. And I think, Mark, if you look at what happened on January 6th, one of the rooms that got vandalized the worst and looked like a house robbery where somebody was trying to find the jewels was the parliamentarian's office. Hmm. And I don't know why. Maybe we'll get to the bottom of this, but my suspicion is somebody figured that's where the ballots that's were. That's where they went, yeah. Well, and that's what they were after. So just a, a tiny note, Mark, if you remember when we had, I think it was John Yuan, to talk about impeachment, mm-hmm. one of the things that he said was that at the time that the founders were writing the Constitution and the processes of impeachment, they envisioned that the dishonor of impeachment would be such a stigma that no president would ever even want to go through the process, let alone accept it and move forward. And it just struck me when you said, really, our system depends on the honor of individuals, the decency of individuals to follow the rule of law. That was exactly the same example. It was just, this is a different breed of person. 
It is. Anyway, go ahead, Mark. No, Sorry. that's a really good point. So accepting all of your reporting, I'm not so sure that I agree with you that we were as close to a constitutional crisis as you say. And for the simple reason that one, so many people did do the right thing. But if one didn't for some reason, then others would have stepped in to do the right thing. We have so many checks and balances. Let's say Mike Pence hadn't done the right thing. Yeah, to, let's right? say that. So what then would have happened? It, it would end up in the Supreme Court. Just to discuss it with you, how does that happen? So Pence says, we're throwing out Pennsylvania, we're throwing out Arizona, we're throwing out Wisconsin. I would assume that the Biden campaign would file a lawsuit of some okay. kind saying that he has no constitutional authority to do that. So what happens on the 6th? Let's say that he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Then it would go very quickly to the Supreme Court, just like Bush v. Gore went very quickly, expedited to the Supreme Court, right. and they would decide whether he had the constitutional authority to do that or not. And one of the things that I found most comforting about the whole episode was that none of the Trump judges, he appointed a quarter of the judiciary. I don't know that a single Trump judge ever ruled for him on any of these frivolous lawsuits that he filed. The Supreme Court, none of the Trump judges voted in favor of him. 9-0 decision in that ridiculous case brought by the uh, Texas Attorney General. And you did a great job of laying out, like one of the things I loved about the book is how you took on all of the specious arguments that he made and very meticulously laid out why they were wrong and why the courts came to this conclusion. So So important to do that. Not just to say it's a lie, but to show why it's a lie. Because everybody just says it's a lie. You need to read this book because literally John goes through every argument that Trump makes and explains why it's not the case. And I tried to do it through the eyes of people like Bill Barr. This is not like the liberal media is all this, but through the eyes of a Republican judge in Pennsylvania, a Federalist Society guy, Toomey's pick for the bench, one of the most powerful decisions of them all, kind of eviscerating what Trump was saying. But can I just engage with you a second though, Mark? Because I'm going to agree with part of what you're saying entirely, which is it's so reassuring that people withstood this pressure and so many of them. But just to come back to this, if Pence doesn't do it, the certification is supposed to happen on the 6th and you somehow find a way to get it to the court and they agree to do it in a day or two. Obviously, you have to. And then what happens if Pence, now the the vice president and the president, you're saying, screw you, the Supreme Court, what what happened? I don't know the answer. Does the Supreme Court have an army or something or a police enforcement? But I mean, uh, you're presuming so much bad will on so many people's parts. I think if the Supreme Court People in charge. No, no. But again, what was comforting to me is that so many of the people who had responsibilities, from those Michigan guys you describe, to the folks in Georgia, to the vice president, to Bill Barr- to Jeff Rosen. It's a story of so many people. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. So many people doing the right thing. And so I just think that one, our system has so many checks and balances. The whole episode is a testament to our founders, that they created a system that has so many checks and balances and that so many people ended up doing the right thing. And if one chose not to do the right thing, there would be others who could step in and go around them. I hear what you're saying. And I don't want to abuse John's time because he's actually our guest. This is... You see, Mark and I have had conversations before. (laughs) Indeed, as have we. I got to say, I disagree with you, and I think you would have said this differently in different circumstances. One of the things we said when Bill Clinton was the president of the United States, and he was serviced by one of his interns under his desk, and then lied about it under oath, and was impeached, but then not convicted, is we've demeaned the office of the presidency. We have taken down one of the guardrails that exists to ensure that the highest office in the land is also held by an honorable individual, or at least an individual who believes that he should somehow obey the strictures of honor. I think this is a further erosion of those guardrails. And so when you say, yes, you're right, I agree with you, our system is very resilient, our system is very robust, But there were a fucking lot of people willing to do really naughty, naughty, naughty things inside the Trump administration. And I'm not talking about the guy with the horns. I'm talking about this guy, McEntee. McEntee, yeah. John McEntee, Mark Meadows, Jeffrey Clark. So talk about that. Talk about the bad guys for a moment. John McEntee was his enforcer. Tell people who he is. I mean, John McEntee was a guy in his 20s. I first met him when Trump had just started his campaign. He's one of the first dozen employees because he kept on volunteering volunteering his services. He was just out of college a couple of years. He was the quarterback at UConn. He had a very low-level job in the newsroom at Fox, and he came on board. And he was there as the person who carried the president's bags and did whatever the president wanted. I mean, he was there, Mr. Trump, what do you want, Mr. Trump? And then he gets into the White House, Mr. President, Mr. President. He gets fired by John Kelly later in 2017 because of issues with his FBI background checks, suspicious incomes into his bank accounts, which turned out to be gambling winnings, been misreporting his losses. He's actually a very good gambler, this guy. (laughs) So he was in exile for a couple of years. Actually, believe it or not, he worked for Scaramucci. Oh, I totally believe it. (laughs) 
But he comes back in the beginning of 2020 and Trump improbably puts him in charge of the presidential personnel office, which as you know, every political appointee from the secretary of defense to the CIA director to the ambassador to the Bahamas goes through PPO. And he staffs it with his friends. And appoints himself de facto Secretary of Defense and orders the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Yes. So he said- Not an exaggeration. No, this is not an exaggeration. He set out methodically to do a purge of the Trump administration from anybody that was insufficiently devoted to the cause of Donald Trump. Micro-deviationists. Yes. They must be eliminated. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who referred to him as either running a Stasi or a Gestapo operation, a secret police operation in the West Wing to root out infidels. Without the ex. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't use it. I didn't use it. This is the terms over and over again. Yes. I'm not saying that it was the Gestapo. I'm saying that. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's different. So he becomes one of the real powerful players and he sets up a de facto rogue White House counsel's office. They're doing legal opinions because Cipollone, the White House counsel, is one of the guys unwilling to break the law. And you tell this great story, which you told in the book and you also told in one of, I think, your Atlantic pieces about them causing somebody to be reached out to because she liked a Taylor Swift Instagram post. Yeah, you you can't make I mean, they were going through people's voting records. So one Justice Department official was discovered they had voted in a Democratic primary in Virginia. (gasps) (laughs) So that was one issue. But they were going through social media posts in the absurdity of the absurdity, a junior person in Ben Carson's office. I mean, Ben Carson, a known Trump disloyalist, right? I mean, my God. Ben Carson's, one of his personal assistants in his office, turns out young woman really liked Taylor Swift as- Just Swifty. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, and she had liked a post from Taylor Swift encouraging people to vote. But what they discovered is the second photo in the Instagram post had Taylor Swift holding cookies emblazoned with the Biden-Harris logo. Mm. The insidiousness of it so all. So Mark Meadows is the one tasked with reaching out two weeks before the election to say, hey, we really can't have this happening. What's going on over and we there? wonder why he actually lost. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we were doing purges but there were rather people... than actually going out and touting his accomplishments. So what you have to wonder, if it had been McEntee from the beginning staffing this White House and had really... And if... You say if there were people that did the right thing, there were. I totally agree. But let's just do two. Let's say Pence was more McEntee than Mike Pence and was willing to do whatever Trump wanted, A. And let's assume that Bill Barr was what liberals think Bill Barr is and willing to do anything in the service of Donald Trump. And let's assume Bill Barr would have been willing to falsely claim widespread fraud and willing to use the powers of the Justice Department to do things like seize voting machines and the like. It starts getting really complicated really quickly, Mark. I mean, we're fortunate that didn't happen. Did those two individuals, those are just two, did the right thing. What if just those two were Jeff Clark and Johnny McEntee? Well, first of all, we're going down hypothetical lanes here, but I'll travel <laughs> I didn't with you, John. Back there. We had moved right. on. We had moved on. <laughs> I've challenged John's premise, and so therefore he's going after me, which is fine. So let's say Bill Barr had done that. Then I would think you would have mass resignations at the Justice Department. Which that. is a good answer. Yeah. That's what happened when he yeah. tried to put Jeffrey Clark in. Exactly. And by the way, that's one of the great moments and underappreciated moments. And I describe it in detail in the book. When Trump has hatched the scheme to fire acting attorney general Jeff Rosen and put in what would have been his fifth attorney general or was it sixth? I don't remember. Jeffrey Clark, this environmental lawyer willing to do everything. And every senior official, every associate attorney general at the Justice Department says we are going to resign in mass. That was a moment that helped save us. So here's a question for you. I don't want to make you rehearse all of the highlights and lowlights of the book because there are just so many. You want people to buy that. But it does strike me that this is a truly shocking administration, especially toward the end. And another thing, I guess, shocked me, which is that when Donald Trump ran for office, we all thought, ah, this is the performative Donald Trump, right? This is the entertainer Donald Trump. But once he becomes the president Donald Trump, all of that silly facade will fall away. And no, it turned out he was that guy. And what strikes me in your book, and I think it's worth a discussion and at least an attempt at insight, is no, no, he believes this. He absolutely believes that the election was stolen from him. And there are a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans, including people we know and uh, a lot of voters who think it was too. Well, do you think he believes it? You interviewed him in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, do you think he really believes this or is this like a grift? I think that when I saw him in Mar-a-Lago in March of this year or of 2021, I got the sense that he actually now was completely deluded and believed it. But I absolutely don't believe that he believed it. I think this was like a strategy. He's not a strategic guy. He's a by-the-gut guy. 
if there is one thing strategic is I need to be the winner. And as long as people think I am always going to win, I'm the biggest, the best, the richest, the most powerful, they follow me. And if I'm ever seen as showing weakness, maybe they won't follow me. In other words, I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they'll still support me. But if I lose, maybe they won't. So I think that that's why he needed to create this impression that he didn't really lose. And I think he knew that he had to do that as he felt he had to do that for his own survival as a viable political figure and more. And then he violated uh, the drug dealer's oath, which is he got high on his own supply. I, I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. But Danny raises a very, very, very important point, which is there are millions of people that believe this who are good people. They are patriots and they truly believe the election was stolen. And I don't think it behooves us to start yelling at these people that they're either dumb or they're liars or whatever. I think we have to understand why so many people came to believe that. And part of it is because he repeated lies so often people start to believe it. And Donald Trump's done a very good job with a very big megaphone repeating it over and over again. But more significantly, it was confusing election night in America. It was very confusing. And because of the hodgepodge of laws that we have and the way states count their votes, the way the votes came in, I mean, if you were watching television... On 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night on election night, you thought Donald Trump was headed towards a pretty big win. If you woke up in the morning, you would think, wait a minute, what happened to his big lead? And then days later, wait a minute, he lost? You're telling me this after the fact? What happened? And then Trump's telling you it's because they dumped in votes later. They did all that. It's like, well, yeah, that's why. So what I try to do in the book is really explain why. I mean, we have kind of a screwed up system. Frankly, Republicans are to blame for that in Pennsylvania, which was probably the worst state of them all. I mean, why did it take almost a week to find out who wins in Pennsylvania? It's because they don't even open the ballots that are mailed in until the polls close. And then once you open them, you've got to check the addresses, the barcodes, you got to do signature match. I mean, it's ridiculous. A state like Ohio, those votes are actually opened as they come in and they're processed and then just have to be go through the machine. Actually, it's interesting in Ohio, and I explain this. If you looked at Ohio at 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock on election night, Biden was killing Trump. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, is Biden going to win Ohio? No. That's the way they count the votes. The mail-in votes get counted first. Democrats Red tend mirage, to vote. blue mirage. Yes. But you have to explain this stuff. Yeah. Here's the thing. So you talk to him and he believes this, right? It looks like he's running again, right? I don't think he's going to run. Oh, tell me why. So I don't think he's going to run because I think that it's a variation of what we talked about before with the idea of you have to be the winner. I don't think he wants to face the possibility of losing. But and if I, he thinks he can win, won't he run? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that he looks at it and I think he's not a dumb man. And I yeah. think he sees the environment. Biden looks eminently beatable, but not by Donald Trump. So that's one reason. But he's also exclusively focused on the past. If you listen to him, you see what he's doing. It is all about the past. And he just sold his hotel in Washington just seems to me that he has moved on. Now, I'll tell you why I may be wrong. Those are, I think, a really solid reasons why I think that he is not going to want to go through this again, not face the risk of losing. And all he really cares about is proving to the world that he didn't lose last time. But he wants the eyes of the world on him like he always does. And everybody's eyes are on him because they think he's going to run again. So, so he's going to string it out. Yeah, he's going to string it out forever. But when does he make that step where it's like, oh, now I'm not relevant and everybody go look at Ron DeSantis? I talked to a uh, a Republican senator recently who shall remain nameless, who said that he hopes that Trump thinks that he's viable because if he doesn't, he's going to blow up the Republican Party. You broke this story about his conversation with Ronald McDaniel. Tell the story in the book about her. So that was one of the most surprising things, getting to something more specific, is I learned that on the 20th of January, a day which I spent a lot of time trying to deconstruct, you remember Trump leaves the White House at about eight in the morning. He goes to Andrews to take his last flight home. He has a little goodbye ceremony at Joint Base Andrews. And then he walks up the steps of Air Force One for the last time. And when he gets there, Ronald McDaniel, who is home recovering from an ankle injury in Michigan, calls him to say, fare thee well. It's been great. Thank you for everything. And, uh, you know, good luck. But that's not the way the call goes. Trump, who has Don Trump Jr. with him on speakerphone, tells her that he is leaving the Republican Party. Not, I'm going to leave if you don't do the right. No, it's, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm creating my own party. I have this from people who were right there and listening to this conversation that she became rather emotional saying, you will destroy us. We'll never win again. And he said, yeah, that's right. You'll never win again without me. And you don't deserve to win. And his whole tone was... If I lost, then everybody around me needs to lose too. And I'm going to go off and I'm going to do my own thing. And the only reason why he backed down is over the next 
four or five days, the RNC leadership very quietly and something that was never revealed for obvious reasons basically told him that if he did that, it was going to cost him tens of millions of dollars. They were going to stop paying legal fees left over from the election. And the mailing list, which is his most valuable asset, which he rents out for millions and millions of dollars, they were going to give it away to everybody for free and they wouldn't ever be able to rent it out again. So he backed down. But he was going to go and his answer to you will destroy the Republican Party was good. But that's the fear, right? Once he makes that pivot, I'm not sure if he's decided the way you have or whether he's still trying to figure it out. I think that if he thinks he could beat Biden, he would go for it because it would be the ultimate vindication of winning the election. But at some point, if he decides that he can't win, can I ask you a question? Do? do you mind if I turn it yeah, around for that? If he runs, does he win the nomination? Everybody's like, oh, he definitely wins. Look at the polls. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> he hasn't got my vote. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't know. The problem for us, of course, is that, you know, I mean, this is a way different conversation, but the problem for us, of course, is that the primary system is at the root of the problem of our political system because the primary system is driven by the people who come out for the likes of Donald Trump. Yep. I wanted to ask one thing about Ronald McDaniel. I'm sorry. I know it sucks to be the head of a political party and it's no fun and that the head of the DNC says a lot of really awful dumb stuff. But that seems to be their purview. Ronna McDaniel says a lot of stuff I don't really appreciate. Why does she say this? Why does she think that Donald Trump holds the keys to the Republican Party? Is there so little to this party that it has become a cult of personality? I mean, it's a calculation that even Mitch McConnell has made. And I mean, Mitch McConnell's speech when he said he was going to vote not guilty in the second impeachment trial is the harshest condemnation that I think we've ever seen on the Senate floor from a senator of the president's own party. But McConnell's view is that antagonizing Trump will destroy their chances of winning back the Senate. McCarthy's view is obviously it will destroy their chances of winning back the House, that they need to keep him placated. The problem is this is like appeasement. <laughs> it's a yeah. different kind of appeasement. Yeah, I mean, but right. When you see them talk, it's like a hostage video. Yeah. I mean, truly. Yeah. Like, Which but, is but, what he wants. But they are hostage. I mean, it's true. But this gets to the big problem that I've had through the entire Trump era and continues to be a problem now. What do you do if you're a conservative who wants to do conservative things or more importantly, wants to stop socialists from doing socialist things and fundamentally transforming the country. How do you navigate this? Mark's oh asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I mean, I did a column before the 2016 election where I said it's like the trolley problem, you know, the famous sociology experiment where, you know, the train's heading down a track and if you don't pull the lever, then five people will die. But if you do pull the lever, then one person will die, but it's your child. It's an impossible problem. If you're just an average American who's conservative, who I can't tell you how many people who I talk to who say, I love Donald Trump, but he just went too far. I hope he doesn't run again. I hope we get somebody else. But that's not their choice. They're going to be stuck with whatever choice people get. What does a conservative do in this environment? Because you look at what the left is doing right now. I mean, you talk about threats to institutions. We're two votes away from them getting rid of the filibuster, packing the courts, adding states with 50 votes. I mean, the Democrats pose a real institutional threat to our democracy and to any kind of bipartisanship. If you're a conservative and you want to stop that, how do you navigate this? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that the idea of kind of placating him and trying to use him to achieve means A, B, and C has been a disaster because now you're left with somebody who, yeah, you know, he got us some conservative judges. He signed into law a tax cut. Yeah, that's all great, but he also undermined American democracy. I mean, you're left with- Well, hold on. I mean, he didn't just get us some conservative judges. He got us three fantastic Supreme Court okay, judges. Okay, so is that worth, is that worth the- well, uh, I think I know Mark's answer here. <laughs> well, you know, my answer before January 6th was absolutely. I don't care about the tax cut so much, but I mean, what he did in the justices, I mean, I'm pro-life. We have a very good chance of overturning Roe v. Wade, which has been a goal of pro-life movement for decades, since the 1970s. If you just look at it, again, I did a column in the Post, Trump with the mute button on. And without January 6th. without January 6th. I wrote this before January 6th. Great conservative presidency. There's obviously things like Afghanistan and other things that I disagreed with. But if you just look at the record of what he accomplished in office, pretty good. But then you can't ignore on the other side. So what do you do? Did you see what he said about Netanyahu, by the way? Oh, my oh. gosh. It's so horrible. <laughs> right. But this is exactly what you said, John, which is that at the end of the day, he only has- Say what he said. He said, he, fuck he, him. Congratulated Biden. Oh, my. The prime minister of Israel, how dare he congratulate Biden? He's dead to me. You know, everything I did for him. So Mark talks about Trump's accomplishments, but I think the other thing that you do that's very interesting in the book is that you talk about how things also went south for Trump in 2020, about how this obsessive narcissism got him off track. He was on track to be reelected. 
right? Yeah. I mean, you look at the numbers and yeah. you talk about this. Everything is relative. How does the more disciplined Trump, who is on track to be reelected incredibly, screw it all up? Yeah, okay, it's easy to say COVID. But I mean, is that... Actually not just COVID. Right. That's what I want from you. I mean, what it is, is it's kind of why my book basically starts with his acquittal in the first impeachment trial, because now he feels he's invincible. And it's the arrival of John McEntee, and it's the, I'm going to go out and I am going to get revenge on anybody who crossed me, mostly my own people who crossed me. It's Trump without any guardrails whatsoever. I mean, there are the people that are still quietly there to do the right thing, but it's you know, all the people who tried in one way or another to steer him and keep him in the lane are now targeted. Many are fired. Many have quit. And I think it's an indication it was a precursor to what a second term would have looked like. What do you think um, a second term would have looked like? I think that John McEntee would have been choosing the cabinet and choosing the West Wing staff. And Donald Trump would have been wandering around looking for balconies to give speeches yeah, off of. I mean, I, I think we were headed to a a bad place, a very bad place. He was heading to win this, but for two things. And because you're in the press briefing room, you know this, the press briefings after COVID. There's oh millions God. of Americans tuning in, just desperate for information. And he's getting into fights with reporters and you know, like that. And just people were just like- He had an audience. He had, I mean, he could have used that for- And initially his approval on COVID yeah. was like at above 50%. Right, right. He and, had a blip. He was the highest of his president. And then all of a sudden, because I mean, you think about it, Bush had 70% approval yeah, after 9-11. Yeah. Like people want to rally around the president and he yeah. lost that opportunity. And then in the first debate. Oh my God. I mean, even right before that, I think Gallup poll had 56% of Americans said they're better off than they were four years ago. Even in the midst of the worst pandemic since 1918, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst racial unrest, they still said they were better off. Biden wasn't campaigning. He was, he was in the basement. In the basement. Yeah. And then he does that debate. I think just millions of Americans said, I'm done. Yeah. You think those were the two? Key I think that those were, I think, two very key moments. I'll give you another one. And that is where he could have potentially, even after that, maybe turned it around. It's a few days later when, well, <laughs> maybe he was already there, but where he comes down with COVID and he goes to oh, Walter Reed. Yeah. And- if there had been a moment of humility there, and I mean, I know I just said humility in yeah. Donald Trump, but <laughs> but I just faced this. Let me tell you how bad it was. A moment of empathy. Let's face this together. I mean, probably not, but there was an opportunity. But instead, he went <laughs> he went off further. He made like a two year old at Disney the mask World on the balcony. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, I report that there literally was discussion of wearing a Superman T shirt underneath his shirt so we could oh, rip it open. You want to cry that this yeah. person was our president? I have an exit question for you, and it is partly because of your book and because of all the people you've talked to, but it's also because you spent so much time in the White House during the Trump presidency. One of the things that everybody talked about during the Trump presidency, to its detriment, was the family, the royal court around him. Yeah. Jared and Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric and yes, right. What did people call them? Kusey and uh, Uday and Kusey after Saddam Hussein's children. And I would have thought that they, even that they with a view to their future, with a view even to their financial future, let alone their political future, would have been a tempering influence on their father toward the end. How did that end up shaking out in your view? I'll give you the key anecdote in all of this, and Great. that is Mark Short, who was Mike Pence's chief of staff, is really concerned in late December about all this talk internally that hadn't been public yet that Pence was going to be the one who was going to save the day. You know, Trump became convinced this is the way out. Pence just throws out the, uh, you know, Biden votes and we win. And he was worried that it was getting to a dangerous place. So Short calls up Jared Kushner, who he didn't call very often, never asked him for a favor before, and said, look, I really need your help. You're the only one he'll really listen to. Please call your father-in-law and tell him the vice president just can't do this. It's not constitutional. And Jared's answer was, well, you know, ever since uh, Rudy Giuliani came in, I haven't been involved in the election stuff and I'm really focused on Middle East peace right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, well. so they were MIA. Now, there's been an effort since Trump left office that you see in some of the other books, not mine where you see descriptions about how Ivanka kept on going down to see her father and saying, you've got to get out there and stop these rioters. And uh -huh. how she was saying, Mike Pence is a good man. And they could have Revision tried to do something, but no, they didn't. You think Eric or- To this Don day, to this run, day run Jared Kushner has never made a statement about January 6th. Wow. Will Don Jr. or Eric Ron? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's funny, you know, Eric, I got to know pretty well before Trump, before the election in 2016, 
And he seemed like a really actually very level-headed and he was the guy kind of running the business. And by 2020, in the heart of the campaign, he seemed to be drinking the strongest Kool-Aid. He really thought that his father was going to win a landslide election, not just that he was going to win like Bush over Dukakis style election. And it's strange. I don't know. No, that's depressing. But that is our tradition. That's a good question. So we just buried Bob Dole. Yeah. And everybody has been talking about how this is the end of an era of Republican politics. Genuinely nice, funny guy, honorable man, war hero. George H.W. Bush, war hero, good person, lost. John McCain, not a nice person, but war hero and decent man, lost. And Mitt Romney, not a war hero, but a good and decent man, kind man, lost. Democrats love Republicans to lose. That's true. But I mean, all these nice guys lost. And then Republicans. Well, you worked for a guy who won. What was his name? George W. Bush. I did. Yeah. He was a a little bit of an exception to that pattern, isn't he? (laughs) But it just seems like, especially after Romney, nice guy. And they pummeled him, called him a racist, you know, all these terrible things like that. A dog killer. Republican voters said, okay, we now get it. Character doesn't win in the polls. We need a street fighter. Yeah, um, I don't know Trump if that's why it up. happened, but uh, no, I, mean, that's, I think yeah. that's what happened with a lot of people where they wanted. Was to... there a question in there? No, I'm asking, what is the future of this? Put aside Trump, are we going to have more Trump-like people? Is the Republican Party going to be a street fighting party, populist party, or is it going to go back to its roots? What's going to happen in your thoughts? I don't know because I don't really recognize the Republican Party that exists today, the center of gravity, where it is. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I think that's going to be You'll probably help determine it from your bully pulpit, but you know it does seem to be a populist party that is not particularly rooted in conservative principles, and so many of the shining lights are simply there to be provocative and you know to be outrageous. I mean, Reagan wouldn't recognize this party, would he? I don't think he would. No, very different. That's for sure. All right. Well, fine. We kept to it. We still were depressing at the end, and that's what matters. John, fantastic book, and thank you for taking the time hey, it's to come great hang to out be, with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You guys have a nice studio. Yeah, you know, we're kind of fancy here at the American Enterprise Institute. Like Freedom, the- opportunity, and enterprise has its own rewards. <laughs> yeah, like anyway, thank awesome. you. Thank you. Great, thanks. You know, you said something before our interview, and then we talked to John, and one of the things that I think is really worthy of repetition is the loss of faith in the press. Yeah. You know, one of the things you see in this book, and we really do encourage everybody to get this terrific book, is you see a reporter. And, you know, like all mythology, the notion that, oh, in the golden age, reporters were unbiased. That's not true. Reporters are human beings just like we are. And they're not unbiased. And they have more subtle ways of showing their biases than perhaps they do now in the New York Times. But nonetheless, there has been a major, major change. And John is just one of that old school someone who really does call it like it is, who reports it like it is. And I just ask myself, why aren't there more reporters like that? So you're absolutely right. I wish there were more reporters like John. According to Gallup, only 36% of Americans trust the media. That says something. Because I think the ultimate problem that we had on January 6th, and not just January 6th is just one episode, but it really started the day after the election and continued on until January 20th during that whole period. There was such a blizzard of lies coming from Sidney Powell and from Rudy Giuliani and all these, you know, I mean, we're talking about like conspiracies with Hugo Chavez and like the Chinese, the Chinese and, and the, the oh, Freemasons so, and, and, the, uh, and the CIA, the, the oh, yeah, CIA, the CIA director. that and Gina oh, Haspel had yeah. been like kidnapped. And like, I mean, there was just nutty stuff out there. There was such a blizzard of lies going on about the election, and there was no neutral arbiter of truth that anyone could turn to to find out what's really going on. The president was saying one thing, the media was saying another, and nobody trusted it. Any of so, them. And Democrats so- didn't trust the president, which is something you don't want. A lot of other people, Republicans and some Democrats, didn't trust the media. So you ask, why do so many people believe Donald Trump? Because they don't trust the media, and for good reason. The media has really damaged its own credibility. Why is there no soul-searching? Do they never stop to ask themselves about the role that they're playing in society? Because what they really are, they are the people standing behind those with pitchforks and flaming sticks going, hey, go, go, go. This is what I see. This is what I see at night on cable news where people are just trying to light people up. They're trying to divide people. They're trying to make people angry. And I don't understand why. I know there are 
people like Fred Hyatt, who we talked about last week on the podcast, rest in peace. I know there are people like him who look at what's happened in the media and are not happy, are not happy that the good name of journalist has now got a 36% gallop rating with the American people. But why is there no leadership? Why is there no one because standing it's so up? it's much easier to just attack Donald Trump and be on your high horse. If you're in the media, right, and I'm talking about reporters. And but I mean, there are conservative press that likes to attack Joe Biden. Okay, but that's a wolf. Well, that's not different. It, it is different because I'm sorry. Is there the equivalent of the Russia hoax on Joe Biden? I, no. mean, I mean, truly, if you're a voter and you look at the Trump presidency, the whole thing from beginning to end, he comes into office and for two and a half years, he's just hounded by the Mueller report, by the Mueller investigation, by the FBI. They literally were trying to discredit his presidency from the very beginning, say that he was a tool of the Russian government. It was the biggest fraud ever perpetrated. And God bless in the Washington Post, Eric Wemple, and I want to have him on the podcast, has really gone through the Steele dossier and all the people who spread this thing. And it was all false. With exceptions like Eric, there's been no introspection on the part of the media about its own role in January 6th. Because if they had maintained their credibility and had not been seeking to destroy Trump from the very beginning and maintained some objectivity, then maybe people would have trusted them when they said, no, actually, the election wasn't stolen and here are the facts. Nobody listens to them. It's like the boy who cried wolf. You said that on the last podcast, too. Did I? Yes. Well, it's a good analogy. <laughs> There's a reason why it was a famous a, story. <laughs> exactly. It's a reason why we all talk about it. The media has discredited itself so much, and it's much easier to just say, oh, Donald Trump, isn't he horrible? It's much harder to say that than say, what responsibility do I have in January 6th? What responsibility do I have in people believing the big lie because there was no arbiter, no one trusted me when I told them it wasn't true? So I see a theme here, and I think this is a good note on which to end. We talked to Marty McCary a few weeks ago. One of the things that I said was it just really sticks in my craw that we haven't had a kind of a 9-11 commission about how COVID was handled. I think the same should be true about how the media handled the Trump presidency. Yep. And while obviously that is not a job for government like yep. COVID would be, it is nonetheless a job for, you know, everybody likes to have an ombudsman. Mm -hmm. It is a job for media ombudsman everywhere, for the Columbia Journalism Review or what used to be the Columbia Journalism <laughs> Review. But for all of those people, I think Everybody needs a moment to step back exactly. and actually ask themselves whether the choices that they've made over the last few years reflect well on their institution, on themselves, and on their country. Uh, well, they're moving in the country. opposite direction because now you're hearing – now the discussion in the media is this, right? Too hard on Joe Biden. No, I literally just listened to this a few weeks ago in the 538 podcast yeah. where they were actually having a discussion – over whether – so, you know, you look at the Georgia election, right? And Brian Kemp, who stood up for truth, is running against Purdue, who bought into the big lie. How can you cover that objectively? Are you serving democracy by covering that objectively? Because one is the pro-democracy candidate, the other is not. They actually think they should be more biased because now we're not in a normal era where there are just Republicans and Democrats with their differences. One party is for freedom and democracy and the other party is a threat to it. And so therefore, we can't cover them equally. Right. And, the, the, and the White House is feeding- that's happening the, in the media today. The White House is feeding into that by telling the press that they're being too hard on the president for yeah. the unbelievable inflation, the unbelievable supply chain problems. Problems, the unbelievable job problems. Yeah, you're the unbelievable right. Unbelievable withdrawal in Afghanistan. I believe that. Yeah, no, that listen. Uh, we should be you, less you objective, are, is what they're saying. But you're it's right. Insane. Let us be the first to say perhaps a little more is needed. A little more humility, a little bit more reflection. And with that, we hope everybody had an amazing, not too reflective <laughs> New Year's. <laughs> and here's hoping that uh, 2022 will be a way better, way more party-filled, activity-filled, less infection-filled year. COVID-free. COVID-free. Amen. COVID-free in 2022. It doesn't rhyme, but it sounds good nonetheless. <laughs> anyway, Happy New Year, everyone. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.